Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. We are pleased that so many of you are joining us for this very timely topic, navigating China's technology rise, critical technology regulation and its industry impact. The discussion is the second in a series of virtual webinars about China's technological rise. The first program featured Admiral Denny Blair, and its replay is now available on our website. Now let me introduce Anyan Paul, former diplomat, author, and advisor on emerging markets. Anya is co-founder and partner at Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel a strategic consulting firm that helps U.S. companies navigate international markets. Um, she's a director of the Aspen Strategy Group and the Aspen Security Forum. And most importantly, of course, she is a director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Paul Triolo leads the geotechnology practice at Eurasia Group, focusing on global technology policy issues, cybersecurity, internet governance, amongst other things. Prior to joining the Eurasia Group, Paul served in senior positions within the U.S. government for more than 25 years, focusing primarily on China as a science and technology and cyber power. Paul is also a participant in the National Committee's Track to Digital Economy Dialogue. So let me start with a question for Anya. How did we get here? What is this rivalry? What's it about? And how did we get in the position we are today? Thank you, Steve. And hello, everyone, virtually on video. There were so many friends in the list that Maddie sent around yesterday. So I'm just sorry that we can't be together in person. And many of you are true experts in this. So we want to, Paul and I are going to keep it really short and then hopefully have a lot of questions. Um, how did we get here? Uh, it won't be news to some of you that China is working on becoming a technology superpower. Everyone has now heard of Made in China 2025, where their goal is to master key technologies, semiconductors, 5G, robots, self-driving cars. And by 2035, China says they want to be a global innovation leader. Now, that alone doesn't sound very menacing. Um, how are they reaching this? we've also heard a lot about. Of course, there's IP theft, cyber espionage, people estimate it at enormous sums between 100 and I've heard up to $500 billion a year in IP theft by the Chinese. Uh, very hard to verify that. But they're also doing it through a variety of nuanced and frankly legal ways. Huge government funding for their technologies, uh, 100 billion or more put into semiconductors, lots of emphasis on AI, lots of things that we know about. They mine open source databases. There's nothing illegal about that. They're open source for a reason. There are lots of universities. And then, of course, famously, there are all the various programs, like the Thousand Talents programs and others, to bring STEM, science and technology talent, home. And when you look at what the US and the West have really done to date about this, I think we're just waking up. 
The US response, you've all seen it all over the newspaper, in my view has been extremely defensive. We're trying to build a moat around our technologies. You see it with what I thought was the rightful revision of the CFIUS law, it's now called FIRMA, which makes it a little bit tougher for Chinese and others to invest in some of our most advanced technologies. I think that's a positive th thing. There's also a new emphasis on export controls, which seemed relatively nuanced, but just last week, the Department of Commerce came out with an enormously broad regulation that says essentially no one can sell, no American company can sell anything to anything that might go to the Chinese military. And if you know how many Chinese enterprises are dual use or some in some way involved with the PLA, that's pretty broad. And I know a bunch of American tech companies that are now scrambling to understand what that is. It's been very defensive. I would support, and I think Paul would as well, a far more offensive, positive agenda and how we compete with China rather than just shutting them out. But I'll stop there and we can get to that in a bit. Thanks. Paul, did you wanna add something on that question? A couple things. One is, I think, you know, this, uh, Anya covered a lot of things. I think I tend to think of this as driven by sort of four major issues and, 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 and they've sort of been, some of them are you know, predate this, the Trump administration. So one is this longstanding concern about China's theft of cyber IP that, that, uh, that, that uh, Anya mentioned. That started in like 2010 with the, the Google uh, Aurora intrusions. And then there's, again, we, we, when we get to the middle part of the, that decade, we get all these Chinese programs like Made in China 2025, the National uh, IC Fund, uh, Belt and Road, uh, and then other national plans like the National uh, Artificial Intelligence Development Plan. So th those kinds of things, I think, you know, started getting a lot of attention uh, in, in the U.S. And then on the U.S. side, there are two big issues. One, one was the national security strategy that came out in 2017, and that talked significantly about protecting the national security innovation base. So basically, that made all of Silicon Valley uh, uh, now as part of the U.S. sort of national security uh, apparatus. And I think that, that's, a, that's a little bit of a change from what we what we from previous administrations in, in terms of putting basically the whole U.S. innovation uh, game in, in that basket. And then I think finally is that is that broader sense that China is, is now a big tech player and also the, the growing perception over the last couple of years that China was not living up to its WTO obligations uh, and particularly in key areas like market access for U.S. tech companies, right? So there's a big tech component to that. So when we look at this so, sort of the, and then, then we jump down into, how, into the policy realm uh, with those four themes, then then the the tech conflict, if you will, has centered on these trade-related tech issues, subsidies, market access, um, the stuff of the 301 investigation, basically. And then the technology control issue, this perception that China has been taking advantage of of the U.S. export control system, had, had, which hadn't been updated for some time, and also the investment review system under under CFIUS and FIRMA. So that so early in the administration, those those both of those uh, segments were were upgraded with new legislation, and we can talk more about how that has played out. Um, and then the other big factor, I think, is supply chains. The sort of obsession uh, at the Pentagon and other places with lots of Chinese stuff in the supply chain. So the Pentagon, for example. Did a study, and they and they, and the number they came up with for dependence on China for their critical supply chains was so high that they classified it. Okay, um, and then the final theme I think, which is really important, we could talk more about, is that this meme that's part of the Washington consensus, which is the U.S. and China are locked now in this sort of zero-sum long-term struggle for the technologies of the future, 
uh, AI, quantum computing, 5G. But more importantly, there's a corollary there, which is that China will, is going to misuse these technologies in ways that are, that are inimical to Western values and Western democracy. So think facial recognition in Xinjiang and um, you know, quantum computing to break crypto, um, et cetera, and, and 5G around Huawei, right, uh, which we can talk more about. So that, 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 those four themes, I think, are, uh, and, and then the sort of specific areas are really critical. And then finally is this, this narrative which has grown up in DC about around decoupling. And that's, that's what this has all sort of led to. And you know, again, you can argue that, that China started the decoupling, right, by, by uh, you know, not allowing US companies like Google and Facebook and the social media companies to, uh, to, to, to be in, participate in China's digital economy. And then also, you know, the, the financial system in China is not really coupled, uh, the RMB is not convertible, et cetera. So China has had this sort of, in both technology and economic spheres, a sort of, you know, has not been really wanting to fully couple. Uh, and so some have argued that, that, you know, China started the decoupling, of course, and then the US under, under uh, with, with advisors like Peter Navarro, and others have, have, have sort of latched onto this idea of that the supply chain, there's too many supply chains in China, so we need to sort of decouple those supply chains. So the decoupling narrative, which we had as our number two top risk this year, um, is, is sort of on the, is, is around in DC. And I think the, the, the important thing to understand about that is that, you know, coupling in, 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 the, in the new ICT sphere, the information and communications technology era around 5G and the internet and all these things, it's different than, you know, when we were buying sneakers and toys from China, right? It's a much more, it's much more complicated because now, you know, you're through the technology, uh, the, the two sides are much closer and there's more, and vulnerabilities become more evident. And so that's, I think, uh, led to this, for example, particularly the concern about Huawei. If Huawei is going to build the world's next generation internet and 5G networks, and, uh, and the U.S. doesn't trust Huawei because of its relationship to Beijing, then that becomes a huge problem in a way that you know might not have been so salient uh, even even five years ago. So I think those are all contributing to the um, to the sense of the U.S. and China are in this this conflict over technology. Anya, well, both of you mentioned that one of the reasons we should be fearful is this enormous government funding that is occurring. Um, over the years, I've watched government fund a lot of things. Um, by and large, when it's in the technology space, it's not usually successful. Enormous amounts of money are spent, um, and the results generally are not terrific. I mean, one would argue, let's say the high-speed railway was a, a success, but semiconductors has been rather a failure. They have, the Chinese government, has spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to catch up to Intel, Qualcomm, et cetera, and have failed. So should we be so worried about government spending? Yeah, I'm so glad you raised that because I think this is a perfect example, Steve, of how what Paul talked about decoupling has taken on a life of its own. And we're, I say this to my Stanford students, you know, we're the US, we're the country of John Wayne. We like good guys and bad guys, and we're not very good at nuance. And this is exactly the kind of policy that create that requires nuance. So Chinese government funding is always being thrown around. And I do think it is true that in the United States, we need to reinvigorate our basic and applied research R&D that's been going down, especially going down as a percentage of of um, GDP. The private sector is making up a lot of it, but the stuff that the private sector is investing in isn't really 
the national security security related tech that we're worried about here. But I think your question gets to exactly this point is, how do we bound the problem? Instead of decoupling everything between the US and China, which seems to be the path we're currently on, let's think about what we're really worried about here. So in the technology space, I would argue it's three and a half different technologies. Artificial intelligence, that's obviously enormous but you've got to worry about that, especially the dual use pieces, because it is the steam engine. It's the general purpose technology that's gonna end up um, powering everything else that we do in the tech world. So that's one. Two, semiconductors, because they're the building blocks. You can't do AI, you can't do any compute until you have the most advanced semiconductors. They're, we're really still ahead in the United States, especially in design and in manufacturing the equipment but you know, most of the world's semiconductors are actually produced in South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. So thinking carefully about how to shore up that goes into our government and DOD, I think is reasonable. 5G, you know, the world has been talking about nonstop for the past year. It is important because it's the backbone that's gonna power everything, both our devices that are in all of our pockets, but also the internet of things, everything, your electricity grid is gonna be shut on and off by things involving 5G. So you need to make sure that that backbone is secure. A lot of people would add quantum to that. And maybe I'll ask Paul what he thinks. Um, obviously mm -hmm. that's critical. I've got to tell you that term gets thrown around all the time and, and I know, literally nothing about it. When I talk to the folks that actually do quantum physics and quantum computing at MIT, Harvard, Stanford, they say it's actually really pretty far out and our research is really advanced, so we need to keep doing it, but it's not a five alarm fire yet. Paul, I don't know if you have other technologies that you would throw into the sure. watch carefully bucket. And, and, and sorry, my last point on that is that leaves a whole lot of things that we shouldn't be restricting in that we're actually, in some cases, you want to compete, but in some cases, cooperation could actually be useful, for example, on clean tech and things of that sort. I agree generally with those. I think um, you have to sort of look at those each individually and sort of what's the short-term issue, the long-term issue. I think um, I, yeah, I, my list was similar <laughs> of the concern. I think with quantum, you're talking about quantum computing, quantum cryptography and, and quantum communication. And yeah, those are, those are potential game changers. Um, but but as, as Anya noted, the sort of getting to the point where those are gonna be really in the game changer ballpark, is, we're, still, we're still far off from that. And that argues also for keeping those sectors or keeping an eye on what, what other countries like China that are leading in this area are doing. And I think that's also the case with artificial intelligence where you know, the, the, the game changer really in AI would be something like artificial general intelligence, some kind of breakthrough. And so, it, you know, and again, we're probably far from that also, you know, maybe a decade or, or more, depending on who you talk to. You know, Elon thinks maybe we'll get there, uh, you know, sooner. Um, but I think there, again, uh, in, the in the near term, it's, you know, we're sort of in an R&D phase almost with AI. And so there's tremendous amount of collaboration between the two AI communities, for example, in the U.S. and China. So we really don't want to, I would argue, you don't want to be splitting those communities uh, you know, driving a wedge through those when both sides benefit. Um, a lot of Chinese st study in the U.S. Um, go back to China, but they, they maintain ties with the Valley. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it, decoupling an AI, in other words, I think is, is a bad idea because we also want to keep an eye on what's going on in China because they're really, you know, they're cranking out software engineers. 
um, and they're really uh, a, a power going to be a, a big powerhouse in AI. So I think that's a an example where both sides benefit. There's not to me that's not a zero sum game at this point. Um, semiconductors is a more complicated, and that's we can talk more about that. I think that's where uh, the U.S. government feels like that's where the U.S. has a big advantage uh, in terms of leveraging that advantage, both in equipment manufacturing and then in terms of sort of cutting edge design and things like arcane things like electronic design automation tools, which uh, which the U.S. cut off, for example, from Huawei. Um, and, and there again, though, there it's not so much the technology, but it's that U.S. companies uh, are deriving tremendous amount of their revenue from the China market and are designing for the China market um, and plowing that money right back into their R&D, which is benefiting U.S. national security because they're designing, you know, cutting edge chips for the U.S. too um, and, and for, for DOD. So that's a much more complicated issue where the technology is important. But here, again, U.S. companies are doing a lot of business in China. And if we cut that, if that market gets cut off, then their leadership uh, in these areas is threatened. So I think semiconductors is, is definitely in there, but it's a little more nuanced in terms of how and what U.S. policy should be around semiconductors, which we can talk more about. Should we have, you know, th there were folks at DOD, uh, my, my source is nobody at DOD, my source is an article which talked about DOD opposing uh, the restriction, a lot of the restrictions on U.S. semiconductor exports to China for precisely the reason that you mentioned, Paul, which is by cutting mm -hmm. off that market, ultimately you reduce the amount that the these companies can devote to R&D. So do you think the policy towards semiconductors is wrong today? Well, really good question, Steve. And it's complicated because as Anya mentioned, for example, these rules that came out last week, which will take, in, take effect in at the end of June, basically <laughs> potentially define all Chinese companies as military end use organizations. If you look, if you read the the, 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 the text finally there. And so that means, for example, that, that Chinese semiconductor manufacturers who may be doing work for the military or the government um, could, be, could be cut off from US, US uh, semiconductor manufacturing technology, for example. Um, we don't know how commerce is gonna interpret that yet. We don't know how they're gonna designate companies, but basically it means every US company now shipping high-end equipment to China for semiconductors or for aviation kinds of manufacturing has to get a license. We'll have to go to Commerce and get a license and do due diligence on their on their customers. So that, that's a huge issue. So that's sort of a broad issue around semiconductors. And I saw that very much as sort of a backdoor way to get in this foundational technologies list that was called for uh, in the Export Control Reform Act in 2018, which has been bandied about at Commerce for two years and industry has been pushing back on this. Um, I saw that this is a sort of a way to get at that problem because now you're focusing on the end use rather than on the technology, which has been the, the, the was, was the mandate coming out of the uh, CFIUS and, uh, and export control reforms, uh, which, which tried to focus on the lists of technologies. And I think one takeaway here is that, you know, lists of technologies may not be the best way to control US, US uh, what's, what's going from the US to China, because it becomes very difficult for industry, for example, to understand what's the national security concern around a particular piece of technology or equipment. The end use is a little more understandable here. Yeah, it's going to the Chinese military, I get that. Um, but, the, but the technology, no. So, and then the, the second thing is though, that, that, that you're referring to is this narrow thing that's coming potentially soon, which is this tightening of restrictions on Huawei's chip design arm, high silicon. And this is really critical because this is sort of unprecedented extraterritorial reach 
of U.S. export controls to third parties. Um, and that really threatens to, 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 to really mess up global supply chains around semiconductors because, you know, that, that uh, basically is saying that the U.S. can reach out outside of the U.S. to companies in Asia that are leading uh, semiconductor firms and, and dictate their use of U.S. technology for their end users. And that's a, that's a, that's a very different world. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people very worried about that. Can I chime in one point on Paul's? Because semiconductors is such a perfect example of how thorny this is and how nuanced we must be on this. And Paul, you made a lot of the right arguments. For those of you participating who aren't deeply steeped in the nerdiness of semiconductor policy, <laughs> this may be going too far. But I'll give you an example that I think demonstrates it nicely. Last year, when we were all at the board meeting, Steve, you, the Huawei had just been put on the entities list. And you asked me, well, what's going to happen when that's really enforced? And I said, well, a couple of our semiconductor companies are going to go out of business because so much of their revenue comes from China, up to 55%. I mean, really a lot. When you look at our big exports to China, like the first 10, you know, it's like chips, chips, like semiconductor chips, casinos, semiconductor chips, right? Um, so it, this is really critical. And I just wanna emphasize Paul's point. If our semiconductor firms aren't selling to China, there aren't a lot of markets to make up for that. So then all that revenue doesn't come back into the system to pay for the R&D. So what do you do about this other than prohibiting? You could give incentives, which I think are justified you could do something international, like a consortium with the other countries that are really advanced in semiconductor technology. So that's Samsung and South Korea, it's the Japanese, it's Taiwan, which is of course an incredibly thorny issue. It's the Dutch with semiconductor manufacturing equipment. The Trump administration a few months ago leaned really hard on the Netherlands to say, don't sell that equipment to China. And they stopped for a while, but ultimately, is that company going to go out of business? So this is a perfect example of where we have taken what I'm terming a defensive approach, a prohibitive approach. You can't, as opposed to a, how are we going to actually compete approach, which I think would be much more useful. So my yeah, question, yeah. Relate, it relates to last week's regulations. Mm -hmm. So they were quite broad. Mm -hmm. really sweeping and potentially could be devastating for U.S. companies. Did we coordinate that with other countries where they're competitive producers? So is the potential result of this, we're just seeding the market to exactly what Anya was saying, the, the Koreans, the Taiwanese, you know, the, the Dutch, the, you know, the Japanese? I don't think we coordinated. Um, Paul, uh, no, I don't think there was any coordination. <laughs> I've, yeah. My friend Pav Singh from EIUX and I have been talking about this for over a year now. And there is actually now within the State Department under Keith Kroc an effort to do what we call the Tech 10, to have an alliance with some of the technology powers to actually start coordinating some of this stuff. Limited thoughtful export controls, limited thoughtful investment restrictions, maybe something more on the incentive side. But as as far as I know, in the U.S. government, that's in its infancy, and it's coming out of state, not out of commerce. 
Paul? Yeah, let me just say something quickly. I mean, this is one of these classic things, right, where this is a problem that started years ago, this concern about um, how do you verify end users in China, military end users. So a lot of this began in a different era uh, in terms of how do we change the export control laws to account for the fact that some, some companies in China that are claiming to be civilian may actually be diverting technology to the military. But then, of course, the, the, the climate changed. And now, we're, as I mentioned, we're in this era of trying to define foundational technologies. So I think this rule that came out last week was, was sort of had been churning through the system for quite a, quite a long time and ended up popping out last week. And again, we don't really know, you know how it will be enforced, but it definitely was not part, I think, of a broader strategy uh, around how do we really, you know, control technology we want to control without disrupting industry. So, you know, last year, I think it was uh, the, uh, the Senate, some senators like, like Mark Warner from Virginia proposed the, the White House set up an office of critical technologies and security to set, have somebody overseeing a, a higher level body overseeing all these things like firma and investment reviews and export control. Because at this point, there doesn't seem to be, for example, a coherent strategy either within the US government, let alone with allies, in terms of what are we trying to control? You know, what are the priorities and how this is impacting on US industry? Uh, because basically what we said is after 30 years of supply chain optimization uh, in Asia and China, lots of pieces of that have now become national security problems. And that hasn't really been articulated as clearly to industry um, as, as possible. So that's part of the problem here. So this thing pops up last week. I was frankly a little bit surprised also because you know, it is so sweeping as, uh, as Steve mentioned. And we don't, you know, theoretically, for example, this, could, as I said, this could be applied to any Chinese end user that, that has a military connection. So for example, I immediately thought of both Huawei and ZTE. This could mean that this could be also closing the loophole on the entity list, which a lot of people jumped through last year on Huawei to ship semiconductors from non-US origin locations, right? But now if you're, if you're focusing on the end user as a possible military end user, and you have to get a license for, for even things you're shipping from overseas, you know, then, then uh, that could have a much bigger impact on industry. Um, now there's gonna be 60 days to, of some discussion, and I know that the industries are, are, is, gonna, is gonna try to discuss with BIS you know, how this is gonna be implemented. But yeah, no, no, no coordination as far as I can tell, either um, you know, internationally um, or with industry on this. Let me just zoom out to the broad point which mm -hmm. this specific example makes, which is you literally can't get anywhere in Washington these days by arguing for a thoughtful, nuanced China policy. <laughs> and increasingly, that's with Republicans and Democrats. I mean, when you look at um, the Trump campaign unleashing this Beijing Biden ad campaign, and then Biden pushing back by arguing that Trump is soft, was soft on China <laughs> or bamboozled by China, um, we're not, we're in silly season, at least until November. And so not much hope for any rational policy. But the, the, the problem with this one in particular, these regulations in particular, was we are now in depression era unemployment. And what this potentially does is creates more unemployment. That exactly what you said, Anya, that you know the, these companies that do this business may not have enough revenue to continue to operate, at which point they're going to have to lay off their workers. It's really, uh, uh, it's tragic. On the, I mean, I, isn't there a, I mean, I am far from a nerd. I mean, I look at this <laughs> and I listen to experts like you, um, but isn't the obvious answer, restrict equipment manufacturing exports, but don't restrict 
the product exports, that Chinese dependence upon U.S. Uh, semiconductors is a good thing for America, not a bad thing. So don't allow the sale of the equipment for them to manufacture it, but allow for the sale of the product. Isn't that an well, answer? Only the, pro the only problem with that, Pete, is that, that, again, leading U.S. semiconductor manufacturing equipment players like Applied Materials and LAM Research and other, many others, KLA Tencor, these are great companies that are leading the world in this equipment. And they are doing the same thing. They're selling a lot of equipment to China and they're plowing the money they, they make in China back into R&D so they can maintain their leadership. Um, and so China right now, for example, is building something like 40 semiconductor manufacturing facilities. They're, they're, they're targeting memory and and you know, all, there's many, many subsectors of the semiconductor space that they're targeting. And so you know, that's good for them. Now, to get back to your original question way back, which was, um, you know, is, is, is the, in China, is, is all this government money subsidies for, for technology useful? The answer is, 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 in, is yes and no. On, the, on, on one level, it's not. You're right. They th they've thrown literally, no other country could afford to spend tens of billions of dollars trying to subsidize a, 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 a semiconductor machine. No, no other company. But, but, but uh, at the same time, for example, Huawei is, is, a, is a leading, a global, globally uh, competitive company working in a very competitive market environment that really, I, you, you can argue, hasn't really needed government in, investment because they have this huge captive market and they've invested a tremendous amount in their, their own in R&D. And they're, they're, they're China's leading semiconductor company, design company. They design all of their own semiconductors. The problem is they can't make them in China. They have to make them in Taiwan. So Taiwan now then becomes this huge, huge piece of, uh, 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 becomes a core interest for China, for Beijing, both in terms of technology and in terms of sovereignty. And so I think we, one, one area we should focus more on is Taiwan, because Taiwan could become a flashpoint here if the U.S. indeed, uh, for example, puts this rule on, on that, that cuts semiconductors uh, from, from TSMC from going to China. You know, this could, this could provoke a really bad reaction from Beijing. And I've heard that people in Beijing that this, you know, if the, if the U.S. does this, for example, that people say Taiwan is at play at that point. <laughs> right. The causeless belly in the 21st century isn't yep. how do you get the oil? It's how do you get the silicon chips? Yep. The and, I, and, I, and I do think that is a, look, not that anyone's going to Taiwan, to war over Taiwan anytime soon, but it is a nuance that people are not thinking of. And the TSMC problem is really, really thorny. It, and Steve, just to, I think Paul has answered your question, but the problem is it's even more specific than that. So yeah, maybe you sell the equipment to China that's sort of the third rate chips, and maybe you sell the second rate chips, but you certainly don't sell the best chips or equipment, and you also might want to stop the R&D. There, there are still some pretty high level R&D joint ventures between some American and other Western semiconductor companies and the Chinese. So I think we- Well, that's, a good, that's great. I, I would still argue though that, that the focus still be on the end use because I think that's critical. I think you really narrow the end use to, to really clearly military end use. But on the, uh, the problem with, with, uh, with trying to give, you know, to sell China second class chips is you can't do that, right? I mean, Huawei, and, and all the leading Chinese tech companies, you know, they're, they're, they want to compete at the bleeding edge. So they're buying, you know, NVIDIA's latest GPUs um, because that's where they need to be, right? And you want to, and, and I don't think, I don't think we want to 
tag you know Alibaba and Tencent as military end users. But as you start getting into the dual use areas and, and companies that, that are in the defense industry, yes, you want to make sure that those those companies are not doing that. Now it's, it's a problem too, right? Because even Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent are doing some work for the Chinese government and, and, and for the Chinese military. So it's a really tough problem to even when you get to the end use. But that's where that nuance that Anya mentioned is so critical is that you know you, you wanna you wanna be very careful what what you don't allow because uh, if you again if you cut off those companies whether it's the manufacturers or the suppliers of cutting edge chips from that market you know it's it's just, there's no replacement for that right I mean it's it's such a huge market and they're designing for that market um, in some cases yeah. and so that's really risky to play with that I think yeah I I've argued that the Chinese dependence on U.S. supply is good for America but let, let's move on from that let's talk about let's go to 5G. Uh, which you both mentioned is kind of something we need to pay a lot of attention to. And um, Huawei is obviously the center of this controversy. Um, in a meeting that we had with uh, the chairman of Huawei, he restated an offer that he had made to Tom Friedman of the New York Times, which is he's willing to license their technology uh, entirely to a U.S. company, didn't mention any U.S. companies, but any U.S. company that wanted to do it, and then um, the manufacturing would done, be done in the United States, and the license would not have any requirements to kind of go back to Huawei. Should we have rejected that out of hand, or should we have allowed that to proceed, and is that some solution to the 5G issue? You want oh, me to take you that? First. <laughs> okay. Nobody well, wants to take that. It's, I'll, no, I'll jump in. I, I, I'm, I've been talking about 5G all week. Um, so yeah, this is it's it's a great, interesting offer. The problem here's the problem. There's no U.S. company that could take that 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 IP and 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 become a, a, a viable competitor, right? I mean, the problem is that, for example, right now the U.S. is going through this sort of belated realization that you know letting our telecom industry basically um, collapse uh, in the, you know, 10 years ago with Lucent, Motorola, Nortel. Um, you know, the U.S. does not have a, a, a dog in the game here uh, that can compete with Huawei or ZTE or Ericsson or Nokia in Europe, right? And so now the realization is, oh gosh, what do we do about this, right? Because uh, now we've, we, for example, we've outlawed Huawei and ZTE from, from, from supplying U.S. carriers. So now we're, we're left with two carriers and Samsung is, is coming up to speed in some areas, but still not really a big player. Um, but you know, what happens if Nokia goes out of business, which, which has been rumored over the last couple of months, right? Now you're down to one supplier. Um, so the U.S. is now in the midst of a huge U.S. strategy debate over what, what should the U.S. government role be uh, in 5G. And so that it comes down to two things: it, shoring up the, the existing system, which is you know maybe there's a strategic investment in uh, in Nokia or Ericsson, as uh, Attorney General Barr suggested a couple of months ago at CSIS. And the you know, second part is uh, fostering diversity in the in the in the market, and that's really hard to do though because you know there's this thing called open radio access network, which everybody's talking about, but that's a that's a that's the that's where you turn a lot of your 5G functions into software, and that's the direction of the industry generally going forward. And in, and in five to ten years, that will be the, the norm probably. But right now, we're we're, we're sort of stuck with um, big systems integrators like Huawei um, and like Ericsson and Nokia. And so the problem is that you know that model is tough to tough to um, to bridge. So there's so your, the answer to your question, Steve, is there's no 
there's no obvious company in the U.S. because this is this is really is at some degree it's rocket science, right? And particularly for the the, the radio access uh, part of it, the part from your handset to the cell tower, you know, that's really complicated, and you need a lot of really well-trained engineers to do that. And Huawei has tens of thousands of engineers, for example, who can do that. There's no company in the U.S. that has the same similar capacity. Ericsson and Nokia are pretty good in that and very good in that area, um, but there is no U.S. Player that could step in and use that, you know, license that technology, um, and, and then build. Verizon, you know, T-Mobile, just no. No, they, those they, are the carriers. AT&T, the carriers, but the carriers, the carriers have that capability. In other words, obviously, it's a licensing of technology yeah. that requires training. Well, you know, it's, Steve, it's a, the problem is also that a lot of the companies got out of this because it's a really low margin business, and when you have a player like Huawei, that's a cheaper and pretty good because they're in China and their engineers are cheaper and they're being subsidized like crazy by the government, no one wanted to compete. No one really wanted to do this business right. in the US, to be honest. But they, 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 were, they were offering it, they were giving away the technology. I mean, they're giving away the technology. Yeah. Hard to imagine that if they can, even in their low cost structure and with subsidization, they could give away the technology. For us to be, I think, you know, Paul's point, we may only have one provider of this is I think people in the industry think that's a reasonable conclusion. Um, that is not good for, for, for the users. You have one provider pricing and poorer communities in America may not be able to get it because the cost is too high. I think there's, there's danger. And I think the market should decide this as opposed to the US government that says, no, we don't think this should happen. That's right. And I do think, Steve, of, of all the different ideas floating out there, and there are a lot of them, the ORAN network that Paul mentioned is one of the most promising because it basically takes the advantage away from Huawei. So the reason Huawei is so sticky in the market all around the world is because they've vertically integrated themselves. So if you have a Huawei 4G network, you can't go with another supplier for your 5G network unless you rip out all your Huawei 4G. Wow. Enormously expensive. And that's obviously really beneficial for Huawei as they're going around the world now. That's one of the sticking points here. Once you develop this open source virtualized software layer on top, which is what ORAN is, you know, more, my view is, I think technology isn't quite there, but we could get there in a couple of years. Then you take all of that advantage away. And I think that's one of the best proposed solutions. Yeah, I would just add that's, that. I, I, agree, I agree with that totally. But the, the only problem is, you have this sort of short-term problem where ORAN also undermines the business model of Ericsson and Nokia. So that's where, that's where the administration is sort of in this really difficult space where they don't want to come out and fully endorse the ORAN approach because you know that, that, that will even make matters worse for Ericsson and Nokia, which are both, frankly, shaky financially, right? I mean, I think what's one thing, for example, that's going to happen after the pandemic eases and travel restrictions happen is all these PE guys and investment bankers are going to fly to Helsinki and make a, you know, probably a hostile takeover bid for Nokia um, because, you know, there's, there's just a lot of feeling that they're, you know, they're right for that, that, that thing. Now, how that comes out is going to be tricky because, you know, um, who's going to buy them? What's the, what, what are they going to do with the company? Break it up, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of concern uh, around that issue because, as I said, the, the, the nightmare for AT&T and Verizon and other U.S. carriers is to wake up one morning and be, be down to one provider, basically, right. um, and they have millions and millions of subscribers. So the problem with ORAN right now is that 
it looks like it's probably going to be okay. And they're, they're trialing it in Japan in some smaller networks that Rakuten is leading. But you know, that's like 20,000 subscribers. You're talking about millions of subscribers at AT&T. So it's still not clear that this scales, this technology scales up to millions. So it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of, as Anya said, there's a lot of focus and movement on this, but we're still not there. It's not a replacement right now for, for, for the big systems integrators. What should we expect? I mean, we've seen the administration do a bunch of stuff now, and obviously export controls are tightening. For, you know, we've seen CFIUS replaced by Firma. We've seen these regulations proposed last week. What should a lot of people on this call are interesting is what's coming down the road is the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is what should we be doing? What should, you know, I think Anya used the word, you know, our, our policies are all defensive. We're walling ourselves off instead of doubling down on R&D, which I think we should be doing. So which of you would like to take that? Paul, you want to start? Uh, let me start. Okay, so I came up with um, a couple of things. First of all, I think Anya mentioned this. I mean, there's a big effort underway within the administration to come up with this a couple of things, and basically an industrial policy, if you will, that, that nobody will call an industrial policy. But this includes um, a bunch of pieces, and and one part of that is the 5G issue I, I mentioned, where you know Congress wants to fund ORAN, and everybody agrees that 5G should be a part of that. Um, and then there's also been talk, for example, about uh, a U.S. government role in bringing advanced semiconductor manufacturing back to the U.S. So, for example, there have been discussions with TSMC. Uh, about possibly citing their uh, next, you know, generation fab in the U.S. Now this is tough because you know we're talking about lots of money, um, and TSMC would probably wouldn't do this without some serious, you know, amount of subsidy. But that's you know that that's being discussed. So that's all part of the of the industrial policy thing. And then there's this other piece which is um, started. I think Anya mentioned Keith Crack, who's the uh, who's undersecretary for economic growth, uh, and he's sort of leading an, uh, an interagency effort to. To come up with things like alternatives to, you know, to the Belt and Road Initiative uh, to fund things, the so-called Blue Dot Network is is one 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 thing, and and it involves this. It it is a an attempt to get a, mul a more multilateral you know, U.S. allies involved in 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 some of these initiatives, um, and you know, for example, a, a more agreement around 5G standards and 5G, you know, the the security around 5G supply chains. So that's sort of a, you know, that that's what. It's it's a more organized government approach to um, you know to to have an alternative essentially to to things that China is offering like Belt and Road and like Huawei and all, you know all these things right so there's a realization that you know the U.S. isn't going to have an industrial policy like China um, but there have been people who are saying you know we have to sort of compete with China in in a way in on along China's rules and we have, so we have to the government role has to be stepped up and there has to be more coordination. Um, and there has to be, you know, some kind of strategy long term, right? I mean, that's where China has this huge advantage is, you know, they started working on 5G in 2014 with an all of government approach, right? The U.S. can't even allocate midband spectrum for 5G, right? Even now, this late in the game, um, there's been, there's, you know, up until now, there's been zero U.S. strategy around 5G, for example. So China has a huge advantage and they can marshal you know, lots of resources and all of government and industry and, and get and get all get on the same page and march forward. And that's why by the end of the year, they're going to have 600,000 standalone 5G base stations deployed in China. And the U.S. is going to have basically zero. <laughs> right. Um, so so that's that's, you know, that's a huge problem. So there's so there's sort How of an industrial... China, where is China going to deploy those? Where yeah, are the 600,000 stations that's going to base station is going to be how they is this going to be given to industry to allow for kind of 
productivity increases or is it just the average person in Beijing and Shanghai is gonna have a phone? It's, it's, it's both. They can watch a better movie. It's both. So the first part, the first half of 5G, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much, but the first half of 5G is just, you know, faster speeds to your cell phone. And they, they're already, they started deploying that, that infrastructure already last September. And by, by the fall, they'll have in place basically all the tier one cities um, and, and then uh, even tier two and tier three cities will all be covered with 5G. When I was in Shenzhen in December, I had a strong 5G signal on my Huawei handset, you know, so they're already there on the sort of consumer side. The second part of 5G though is the real game changer, which is this so-called non, so-called standalone 5G. And that's smaller base stations. Think about, you know, autonomous vehicles along roads where you have these very small base stations. And that's that's a big problem in the US, of course, because because you know, nobody wants to give up the right away. But in China, that's what I'm talking about by the end of the year, they'll have that, they're, they're going very quickly to full standalone 5G. And that will enable all of these fancy things like smart cities and, and you know, the IoT stuff that Anya mentioned and you know, augmented reality and, and autonomous vehicles and smart cities. So they're pushing really, really hard in that direction. Um, and they're, gonna, they're way ahead on that uh, going forward. So, that, that's, a, so that's a problem. Um, and then, um, so, so you know, again, the US is coming around to this industrial policy that will include some piece of on 5G. The second piece though is education, right? That's the, the sort of standard one, right? I mean, you know, again, China has a huge advantage. They're cracking out, you know, STEM students, you know, uh, nonstop, right? And so the, the US system is gonna, is, is just, you know, it's not, it hasn't really produced um, the, you know, people are not going into the STEM area. And it's a huge problem. And so, you know, at, at a minimum, and then all of, all the U.S. government initiatives around AI and quantum all call for more, you know, more investment in education, et cetera. And then I think the third thing I would mention is, is sort of this positive policy is, you know, I would say find areas for open collaboration with China. <laughs> Try to, you know, things like AI, as I mentioned, standards, AI governance, um, and data governance, for example, because that's a huge thing that they started talking about in the trade talks last year that, every, that I was getting optimistic about because China had resisted this uh, talking about cloud services. But once you started talking about cloud service openings, you have to talk about data and data governance. And, you know, this is a huge problem going forward. And, and again, if we want, China needs to be part of this, so you, one could argue. And the trade, the trade discussions, we're, we're getting uh, towards some real serious issues around that. So, um, you know, bottom line, last, last word on this is, you know, we have this, we have to find somewhere between decoupling, right? Because nobody wants that. The business community does not want that. And right now, Washington is decoupled from the business community on that, right? So, so somewhere between decoupling and we're not going to go back to 2017 at Mar-a-Lago, right? That, that status quo is not going to happen either. So what we need is somewhere in the middle. Uh, my friend Scott Kennedy at CSIS um, has proposed this thing called uh, principled interdependence, right? And, and it, it's actually a pretty good idea, but it, but it, it tries to capture this idea that you know, we're going to have to be tough on China, but not... Decoupling is nobody wants decoupling, uh, at least not, of all in the business. Not, not clear. <laughs> Anya. Yeah, but Paul really discussed what's happening very clearly. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some thoughts on ideas that would be relatively inexpensive and really move the ball forward. And actually, Steve Hadley and I just did a, an op-ed that's going to come out on Monday on what you might do in the next round of stimulus to help us be more competitive with China. So here are a couple of ideas. The big one is, of course, the federal R&D budget. As I said in the beginning, it's going down all the time. There's a study out of MIT that says for every additional 10 billion spent on federal basic and applied R&D, you're creating 400,000 great new jobs in the US. I don't know where they got that, but 
you know, that's real money. 10 billion is nothing to sneeze at, but clearly we need to be doing more, right? You could do things that would cost no money, like R&D tax credits. They've gotten so broad that I actually looked this up this week. You can get an R&D tax credit for developing a new craft beer, a new kind, of, a new emoji, <laughs> a new way of producing chocolate. And that's, you know, I like craft beer and chocolate, but maybe we should have really amazing tax incentives for the strategic hard stuff that I talked about, strategic AI, semiconductor, you know, the stuff that we care about for our national security, a little for, for things that are more at the margin. Um, on STEM education, huge problem in the OECD PISA rankings, China always ranks 10th, a little maybe cheating goes into that number. Um, we rank 31st, that's pathetic, no matter how you put it. Um, yeah. Short of fixing the whole US education system, which we all, of course, <laughs> need to do. You know, the Eisenhower administration had a really small strategic loan forgiveness program when we were competing with the Soviets that could cost between one and $3 billion a year just to encourage more Americans to get undergrad and graduate degrees in the disciplines that we really care about. Um, those are just, and then, you know, having this conversation now all over, you know, all those experts have it. When you talk to the US government, there really is very little competence about technology in the government. We've done things like get rid of the Office of Technical Assistant Assessment, which used to sit inside Congress. It was, you know, I think it went with the New Gingrich Revolution in the mid-1990s. Didn't cost very much. It cost like $20 million a year to have real technical experts that could advise Congress on this legit legislation. You need people like that in DOD. And for our defense procurement, you just got to get more efficient. And we're spending way too much money on big platforms that are unnecessary. Chris Bros and a bunch of others are really good on this. If we did more to, to help these technologies with our um, government and especially our DOD procurement, you would fix a lot of these problems and then maybe you'd have a few fewer destroyers and aircraft carriers. Given Great. that we've, we've spent a necessary 2.4 trillion on COVID relief for the American people, do you worry that kind of R&D efforts or expenditures on defense or expenditures on virtually everything are gonna be impacted? I worry a lot. That's why Steve Hadley and I wrote this piece because you're now looking at stimulus bill number four and from, we obviously don't have perfect information, but from the few folks we talked to in the administration, the focus is rightfully short-term support, but then also, of course, they're getting all the lobbying from existing industries to save them. And some of the ideas I outlined are really inexpensive. We're talking one, three, five billion dollars a year compared to the three trillion we've already spent. Feels like this is the time to be a little bit more smart and strategic. And, and just to give you an example, that phase four that Anya mentioned, there's probably going to be funding to tear out Huawei and ZTE equipment from U.S. rural telecommunications networks. So we're going to be spending, you know, one, two, three billion dollars, maybe more to rip out that Chinese equipment um, and then have to replace it. So that's, you know, that's another example of where. Should well, we do it, Paul? I, is, is, I, this, frankly, is this an example of mistaken policy? Well, it's complicated. And money ill spent? I, I, sort of, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I, I'm not sure why we're worried about, uh, you know, 
the, now, the problem is that some of that equipment is serving, you know, maybe used by carriers who are serving missile silos and other things, right? So people are sort of freaking out about that. But my, my bottom line view is that, that there's, way, there's many ways to secure networks and to secure communications. And, and um, you know, so I think that, that we, could, we could have used a more nuanced approach, but here the sort of, um, you know, the concern over Huawei has led to us to just want to be consistent. And so just, you know, pull it out, sure. rip it out and, and get rid of it. Yeah. So we're, we're sort of, that's where we are, but as an example of money spent. <laughs> the, um, let me start taking some of the questions since it's our board of directors, a lot of whom are on this call. First one is from Mike Lampton. Uh, how many of these regulatory trends slash predispositions would change if the elections <laughs> change parties in the executive and legislative branches? It's such a good question. Um, I do think the Biden campaign is right now, I'm just trying to be careful not to say too much. A lot of us are probably helping, but um, they're focused on the politics. And I think the policy will be much more nuanced than what you're seeing out of the campaign. But the idea that we'll ever go back to 2017 or 2016, I think it's just over. I think we're just in a really, Right. You know, COVID put the U.S.-China relationship over the precipice, and you literally can't say anything moderate about China in the United States. I mean, the American people are now so see China as their adversary. There's going to be a lot of talking to Americans to make sure that we don't get too extreme. So, yes, slightly different, but um, we're still in an adversarial relationship. I would just add, um, I agree. I would just add at a minimum, you're going to have an, you know, back, you would get back to a more orderly decision making process around China. So, you know, what we have now is, you know, no principles meetings <laughs> to discuss some of these really complicated issues. So the, the White House meeting a couple of weeks ago on Huawei was the first principles meeting on Huawei, right? Um, where the collateral damage could be, you know, war with China over Taiwan. And you have, you know, so, so at a minimum, you're going to get back to, a, a, an orderly strategy development and, and policy process around China that will also focus more broadly, I, I, I would believe, on the other issues where, you know, that, that have provided ballast for the relationship over the past couple of decades, right? Areas of mutual concern, climate change, terrorism, et cetera, right? I mean, the problem is right now we have, we're sort of, the, 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 there's no, the, the only two, two uh, 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 um, cabinet level members in the, in the US government that have working relationships with the counterparts are Lighthizer and Mnuchin, right? That's it. Um, and so that, that's sort of unprecedented um, level of, of, of non-dialogue with China, if you will. So I think at a minimum, you'd get back to some more constructive discussions. But yeah, I agree with Anya that, you know, we, no, nobody's going back to 2017. Um, so that's why I think the problem is finding that sort of middle ground that doesn't, you know, that, that it acknowledges the problems um, but doesn't sort of, you know, get into this escalatory spiral where we're heading toward decoupling or even, you know, military confrontation, God forbid. Another director, Bob Peterzak, asked, to what extent is production technology, fourth industrial revolution type devices like robotics, a focus of the mutual concern between the United States and China? I think to the extent that it's military use, this is the problem with so many of the new technologies. There's just a lot of dual use. So to the extent that can be used by either military, yeah, there's a concern, but the problem is that leads into everything else. Paul, do you want to have more specifics? 
Well, I would again argue. I think Anya mentioned earlier that you know, again, semiconductors. What what are robots chock full of? Right, they're, they're chock full of semiconductors. Um, and then um, you know, there are broader uh, issues around um, you know the sort of the the environment that, for example, in, on an automated factory using robots. You know, you're going to have 5G. You're going to have cloud computing. So yeah. So it, I think the problem is is that it, that that now it's um, you know the technologies are all. Quite interlinked, and so uh, that, that, that's why I think this move towards focusing on the end use rather than on the technology itself um, is probably the, the way to go. Because what we're really concerned about are those uh, those those um, you know companies that are that are where the where the technology will, would get to the Chinese military. Now, again, the problem is the Chinese have not helped that by touting military civil fusion, <laughs> right? Um, which is which is uh, was uh, I think the. Uh, Vice President Pence used that in his speech, you know, uh, to show that that basically, and the, the administration has, has basically said this to companies that you know if you're doing business in China, you're contributing to the to the goals of the Chinese Communist Party, um, and you know, and by the way, also probably to their military capabilities. So that that is, I think, again, that's such a broad um, painting everything with such a broad brush that to get back to some agreement around what is really dual use and what are what are is, is really of concern here rather than just everything going to china could end up you know in the chinese military which i think um, nobody really believes um but that that's sort of where we are now in the in at the level of dialogue um that that you know and, and it, it showed up in the latin language showed up in those export controls last week you know it was military civil fusion was mentioned as sort of the justification that's right. One additional sentence on civil fusion, because it seems mm -hmm. to be every speech these days. It's real. We need to be concerned about it. But mm -hmm. if you actually mm -hmm. read the Chinese documents on civil fusion, they're trying to copy us. They say things like, right. America has this big bad DARPA. <laughs> Let's have one of those. They have this big bad DIUX. Let's have one of those. They can, you know, so we just have to be a little careful right. that we're not always painting them as 10 feet tall. They've got a long way to go on civil fusion. Great. All right, I want to try our new technology. Could somebody promote Nick Lardy, our vice chair, to um, Nick? Do we are we going to just hear you or can we see you? Somebody needs to unmute him. Oh, uh, there we are. Hi, Nick. Hey, Nick. Great, great program. I have a question for Anya. Very specific. Great technology. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the fact that that Huawei is heavily subsidized. That's something I frequently hear or read. But the only evidence I've ever seen about government subsidies to Huawei uh, was for something that we would call vendor finance. In other words, they've got a big line of credit so they can uh, get, you know, their their buyers, their users of their equipment can get. Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's cheap finance, but anyway, they got a big line of credit available from some of the biggest Chinese banks. Are there forms of direct subsidy? Yeah, it's a really good question because my info on this is all anecdotal. Anecdotally, I hear the following, the typical free land, you know, all the credits that the Chinese give to their own companies, they're giving to Huawei. And then a lot of this kind of stuff, vendor financing, um, zero interest loans, if you're a little African company and you want to put in Huawei and letting them finance it over longer terms than Ericsson and Nokia would. But um, you're right that all I've heard is anecdotal, no hard evidence. Paul, do you know well, more? Let, let me jump in here. I think really the, the, the vastly more important thing is that in the Chinese domestic market, the government policy, it's not over, it's basically um, local uh, telecom uh, carriers are all 
pretty much relying predominantly on either Huawei or ZTE. So, that, so it's through the purchasing power of the state, if you will, where that, that Huawei now has approximately 80% of the Chinese domestic market, and that's huge. So they, they just won major tenders, for example, with China Mobile to expand 5G, right? So they don't need subsidies, right? They're, Who else uh, is uh, going to do it, Paul? There is right. no other provider. Well, there's Ericsson. Uh, well, Ericsson in China, bid, and Ericsson did get some of the contract. Ericsson did some. Nokia was shut out of the latest round of bidding. So, but you know, the, the EU has been hitting up China for for years to try to make open up that telecom market to make it sort of a more level and fair playing field. Um, and so, you know, Ericsson is going to still be. If they have fifteen percent of a huge, <laughs> of nine hundred million subscribers that China Mobile has. It's still sizable. But yeah, but that, that that role has been shrinking over over time. So on Huawei, I think that they just have a really they have a couple of big advantages. One is that huge domestic market, which allows them to scale, you know, and cut price. And then they're not they're not um, they're not publicly held, so they're not beholden to to stock to, to to you know quarterly profits and shareholders. So they can also offer more competitive prices. So they have huge those two advantages are i think outweigh any government subsidies that they that they would get that's the benefit of any private company over any public company they don't have quarterly reports to worry about when we saw chairman ren he made a big uh point of that that you know too many of the telecom companies in the west are driven by the need to report quarterly and therefore are not making the long-term investments he does not have that problem having said that the yep. campus that they built, <laughs> which is which is uh, a recreation of, of of different European cities for each kind of uh, you know which houses twenty five thousand employees is something that a public company would never do because public company shareholders would go crazy. Yeah, it yeah it's it's really a stunning thing to behold. Absolutely. <laughs> so let me go to a few. Let's see if I had other board questions here. Oh, um, can you discuss if there's any merit to the National Security Review of TikTok? I can't. Um, you know, I I um, I've looked at this, and you know, it's not something we we necessarily follow in any, any great depth. I, I I really don't think so. I mean, I've been to Ch I've spent a lot of time in China. Um, I was on the Guangzhou Metro in uh, in December, and every last teenager with their smartphone on the Metro was watching short videos on on the Chinese version of TikTok, right? Um, and so, you know, this thing was set up to do sort of you know entertainment. The the criticism is somehow that you know the Chinese government is censoring political content on us. Well, well, it's sort of silly because the whole thing that it's not it's not supposed to be a news delivery system, right? It's 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 supposed to be short videos to entertain. Um, uh, teenagers. So, so to criticize it for for censoring, you know, videos about Hong Kong, uh, for example, I think is sort of is a little bit silly. So, I, I I tend to think that there's so many other more important um, issues to to be concerned about. I I really am, I'm I'm kind of surprised that TikTok became such a big issue. I think that that you know it, it, it the, one of the reasons is because in the U.S. it's wildly popular and everybody's downloading it. Because um, people, you know, teenagers That's like right. to look at short videos. <laughs> um, but I, I, I tend to think that, 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 that there's no merit in that because I think there's other things that should, that do merit attention. This is from uh, Virginia Harper Ho, <laughs> one of our members. She asks, is it essential or misguided for the U.S. to restrict Chinese students and potential employees from studying or working in IT? basic science research, et cetera. Is there a path for the U.S. to have relatively open immigration 
and investment policies without sacrificing U.S. company competitiveness and national security. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I intentionally Great didn't question. go into it earlier because it's so thorny. Um, like all these things, there are two sides to the story. There are definitely some Chinese students and researchers at American and European and other universities who are being encouraged to spy and who are spying. There are real um, cases. However, there's also been a lot of academic work done to show that Chinese are accused at a higher rate than they're actually doing it. So there are a lot of people being accused who are innocent. And overall, there's nothing better we can do than to bring Chinese students and others here to learn about our system and to be part of the open system. And so my view is absolutely, it's a terrible idea to ban Chinese students from American universities, which is being bandied about a little bit right now. You do, however, need to be teach the universities to be a little bit less naive. Like you could imagine having a training program, both for professors and, and university administrators to say, hey, here's what's actually happening. Here's what you should report if you see it. And then I would be pretty clear, frankly, with international students, so you're not singling out the Chinese and saying, hey, if you do this, here is the result. You're being a spy and you're going to go to jail, <laughs> right? So be a little bit clear about what the consequences are. But overall, let's not out Chinese the Chinese. We need to keep our open system. I, I'm in violent agreement with that. I will just make a couple comments. One is, you know, Tom Cotton, his comments the other day that, you know, Chinese should be coming here and studying the Federalist Papers and not quantum computing um, and artificial intelligence. I think you know, he, he sort of grossly mischaracterized the situation too in terms of students going back to China. So there was a really good piece that came out shortly after that, which demonstrates that, you know, large numbers of Chinese students, for example, stay in the United States and benefit um, U.S. technology companies, right? I mean, I think U.S. technology companies, for example, are very um, not supportive of any sort of restrictions around uh, this kind of thing around STEM education. I agree with Anya that, yeah, you, you, if when you, when, you, when you have cases and, you know, absolutely prosecute cases where there's, there's clear espionage, but, you know, it, it still seems like it's pretty small numbers of, of, of you're talking 400 you know, to 500,000 students here. Um, I think the, the, the problem is the, the Bureau, the FBI, you know, looks at that number and just kind of freaks out. Like, how do you, how do you possibly monitor all the students, right? So, that, yeah, so I agree that, you know, the universities need to be very careful about this. But, you know, on the other hand, universities are not freaking out because, you know, if they lose um, Chinese students because of the pandemic and because of the hostile atmosphere that's been created, frankly, in the U.S. by comments, you know, from the FBI director that all Chinese students are, you know, spying for the Chinese government, um, you know, that's, that's, that's something we want to try to avoid and, and kind of and ratchet back. So I know Yale is freaking out about the fall where they may, you know, they may lose, you know, $200 million um, because Chinese students aren't going to come for the, because of the pandemic. And then there's a longer term trend um, of probably where, where Chinese students will go to engineering students will go to Europe and Japan, other places. Yeah. One more sentence on this. A, mm -hmm. yeah, American universities will lose a lot of money. My view is it shouldn't be about the money. It should be about <laughs> cultural exchanges. But, um, the, the second point is to follow up from you, Paul, we make it really hard for them to stay. It's virtually right. impossible to stay and work here after you have a degree. So we're paying to educate these students and then we're forcing them right. to go home where they're met with open arms by the Thousand Talent Program. Yeah. I mean, they contribute so much to the diversity in our university systems. They can 
I mean, it's, it's the number of TAs who are from China <laughs> is simply incalculable. Uh, what we should be doing is stapling a green card to their, their college, their, their, their university degrees when they graduate, but that's something that this administration does not seem very enthusiastic about doing. From the U.S. International Trade Commission, Alexander Hammer, uh, what is the role of China's SOEs in its technological rise, and how much of the SOE-backed growth and in innovation has had market-based technological spillover? Yeah, I think the SOEs right now, you could argue, they still, the major SOEs are occupying the sort of still a, the commanding heights of, you know, parts of the economy like like energy and, um, and telecommunications and transportation. But really, all of the innovation and the, and the really cutting edge stuff is all happening in the private sector. It's all happening in, you know, the Alibabas, the Tencents, the Baidus, um, all this the tremendous number, you know, tens and dozens and dozens of second tier Chinese companies um, that you've never heard of that are, that, are, that are innovating. And so, you know, the state, the SOEs play a role because they're, they're, um, you know, they, they're still critical, for example, to 5G. I mean, China Mobile, China Telecom, and China Unicom, you know, those are SOEs. Um, but, you know, they work very closely with, with, uh, with the, the private sector. And, you know, all their equipment that they buy is coming from Bali and ZTE and, and many, many other smaller uh, private sector companies. So I would say that, you know, the private sector is still the, the biggest employer, right? The SOE role has, has shrunk, but it's still in those, in those very commanding, the sort of core of the economy, you know, rail and other, other transportation sectors, for example. But the really ICT cutting edge innovation is all being led and done in, um, you know, in, in the private sector with some occasional IP being transferred, for example, from the Chinese Academy of Science. Um, you know, they have some good individual research institutes that are very good. Uh, but, but really, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's not in, in this, in the, in the, and particularly in the ICT space, there's no, the, the, the lead is in the private sector. The government is catching up. I'll just give you one example. The National ICT AI Development Plan that everybody pointed to, um, you know, that was the government playing catch up. That wasn't the government saying, waking up and saying, oh gosh, we need a plan for AI. That was the government realizing this is going to be an important sector. And then they named companies as national champions, which had all been working on AI or AI related you know, issues for years. Um, and so the government was very much playing catch up in that case. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's where we are on the tech side. I think that, that, that it's still uh, the most innovative companies are all in the private sector. Um, and they're all, um, you know, they work with the government, but they're not SOEs. We're, we're starting to run very low on time. So let me, we've spent, you know, almost 73 of our minutes talking about what the United States should do. If you, if I could transport you to Zhongnanhai and put you in front of Xi Jinping, what would you tell him to do? The Chinese that I speak to, some are actually quite buffaloed, quite puzzled by what's going on in the United States. They kind of say, you know, a lot of this is just misinterpretation. Um, so if you had, you know, 15 minutes with Xi Jinping. Um, what would you tell the Chinese to do to fix this? And I'm just talking about the technology competition. I, I don't wanna go into all the other issues which they would need to, to, to kind of do something to fix. I would say, stop terrifying us. Every pronouncement that comes out, it, this is kind of where hide and bide was a pretty useful Chinese policy for so long. 
They came out of it maybe a little bit too early. And um, you could say, hey, I'm China. I'm going to cooperate with you on a level playing field for your companies and ours. Because one of the things they did is they lost the goodwill of the American business community about four or five years ago. And that those were their biggest advocates and they no longer have them. So actually create a level playing field. Let Ericsson have some of your market. Let our internet companies compete there. Um, do work with us on um, ethical standards around the world. Really work with us on, on AI standards, on data protection, on biotechnology standards. They're sort of doing that, but not really. But ultimately, I think it's a little late. Sorry to end yeah. on a pessimistic note. <laughs> I was trying to Paul, find something optimistic. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, basically the, the party and she have been talking in, about letting market forces work, right? Um, but, you know, and, and again, to some degree in the tech sector, you know, their market forces are, are working, right? I mean, again, Huawei, some of their most competitive companies globally are operating in market areas, but that's because they can still operate domestically in a more controlled market, right? So yeah, so I think getting to a level playing field, you know, and, and, and adhering to the phase one trade agreement and getting back to, I would say, get back to the table because all the really good stuff in the technology space has been saved for phase two. Um, but I think, you know, if, if, China, if the China-US relationship is gonna have any chance, I think those kinds of engagements, I mean, the, the, I can't emphasize how much the, you know, the Lighthizer and Lilha's teams how much respect there is on both sides. They're both trying to solve problems. You know, Lilha is, his team is great. They're very innovative. Of course, they're operating in a very complicated political environment. But, you know, I think that's, that's an example where, where the two sides can come together and talk about these very difficult and tough issues. But then when, they, when, they, when they've gone back to Beijing, you know, Lilha's team has ran into, run into a roadblock because of all the conservative elements in the government. So I think you know, they've got to, they got to realize that this is, this is um, the, the ground has shifted tectonically in Washington um, and it's not going to go back to 2017. So they have to figure out how to navigate that landscape and doubling down on Made in China 2025, you know, is not going to do it. Um, and so they've got to figure out a way structurally to, ch to address these issues that the U.S. is rightly concerned about um, and, you know, and seek new ways where, where, where cooperation can happen. Like, like uh, Anya mentioned, these key areas like AI and quantum, you know, these are big issues that aren't going away. And the two biggest players in the world have to find a way um, to, to collaborate on some of these things. Because, we, we, you know, the last thing we want, I think, is a, a decoupled bifurcated technology stack that where I can't roam to China on my five or six G handset because you know it's it's because they're using a different standard. I mean, we, nobody wants to go go back to that world. So the, the so the two biggest players in this arena have to find a way to collaborate and and address the tough problems that that are on both sides. But it's it's a really I'm short term pessimistic, but long term optimistic. I guess <laughs> that is uh, I've used the same phrase in many of my speeches, short-term pessimistic, but long-term optimistic, because we need to find a road to cooperate. And given the budgetary deficits now in both countries, we really need to find a way to cooperate and not to divert funds to, to areas which are not productive. But Anya, Paul, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. I have learned a ton, and I'm sure our audience has learned a ton. Wonderful to see you, albeit virtually, and hopefully we'll get to see you in person at some point in 2020. But Paul, Anya, thank you so much.
Thank you. Happy weekend, everyone. Thanks. Enjoy Thanks, your weekend. Dave. Good Bye. seeing you, Anya. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.